Welcome to episode 111. Thank you for joining us. This week, we have another episode of our series, Straight Talk, with Dr. Mike Hunziker. We recorded this episode on 10 November, so what kind of Marines would we be if we didn't celebrate the Marine Corps birthday properly? And what better way to celebrate than to get into the weeds on the current state of one of our primary operating environments, the Taiwan Strait? Mike gives us his valuable insight on the upcoming elections in Taiwan and what it means for the future U.S.-Taiwan relations, what the outcome of the election could mean for Taiwan's future force posture, and the implications of China's gray zone campaign and the potential for overstretch. It's always great to talk to Mike and pick at his 10-pound brain for some tasty nuggets. Here is episode 111. Enjoy! Hello, Scotoboat listeners. I'm William, and I'm here today with Vic. Hello! And I just want to wish you a very formal and very uh, official and very uh, enthusiastic happy birthday, Marines. We are recording on the day of the Marine Corps birthday. And to celebrate, we're having a bit of a a booze fest over here. Uh, We know Vic's got some uh, beer. I've got some gin and wine and a cheese board. So we're ready to party. And in the quote, the old quote, nothing says says Marine Corps birthday like a charcuterie plate. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll see how it turns out later. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so to quote Smash Mouth, my world's on fire. How about yours? The Middle East is ablaze. We got Russia-Ukraine war still going on. The Balkans, you know, it's a shit show as usual. So, um, but today we're going to tell it to you straight. Focus on Taiwan. Bring it back to the Pacific as the Marine Corps is doing. And today we have our esteemed guest, Dr. Michael Hunziker. Mike, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me again. And by the way, just for the record, can I make it very clear? I think that drinking and podcasting is a terrible idea. Well, let's just let's just throw this are. into the world of the of the hypothetical. So, in in literal sense, happy birthday, there, devil dog. Thank you. Um, but in the hypothetical, uh, because this is the we are recording on the day of the Marine Corps' 248th annual birth, um, it would only be within uh, the proper etiquette for two former Marines and the offspring of two Marines to be partaking in hearty beverages while we discuss national strategy. I mean, I don't want y'all get like retroactively court-martialed for not drinking on the birthday. <laughs> that would be a very bad for your LinkedIn profiles. Let's let's be honest. Being part of being a Marine means getting shit faced and then talking about things that we have no qualifications to be talking about. So <laughs> yes. this is exactly in the spirit of what Chesty Puller probably wanted for us. <laughs> but all right, so let's so anyways uh, to bring it back to yes, reality. I, actually, I think that was the message of the 14th Commandant. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah, I will go back and double check that when we're done here. I'm pretty sure you're right. So um anyway, so last time we, we spoke with you, um, Michael, uh, we had a lot to talk about with Taiwan. What's recently going on there? It's almost been like for the average American, look at the news cycle. It's been almost a media blackout, at least from my perspective. Uh, there's not much going on in Taiwan just because the rest of the world's on fire and it's, it shifts your focus. What is the situation on, uh, over there right now? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I love how you set things up by saying the world's on fire. How are you doing? And yes, the world's on fire. And you and I and Vic, we're talking about the tinderbox of gunpowder that we're sitting on top of while the world burns down. And I... I also think it's a great point you raise that, you know, from the American perspective, nothing's happening in Taiwan because the rest of the world's on fire. And I actually think our conversation will probably get to this. This, I think, speaks to some of the challenges of American strategy making. It's just 
we are stretched really to the max here. Uh, but I think of the honest truth, or at least my perspective of the honest truth, half of a beer in, is that uh, stuff is still going on in Taiwan. Nothing really throttled back in that part of the world. And in fact, I, I think Beijing is very much eyeballing what we are doing in the United States and having to do in Ukraine and having to do in Israel. And uh, I, we have to keep on the Balkans and uh, trying to sense and maybe even feel out whether there are opportunities for them in Taiwan. But yes, the pressure is still being ratcheted slowly up. Still a lot of these gray zone provocations and ADIS intrusions and drone overflights. And of course, we have the January 2024 presidential election gearing up. We're really in November. The slate will be set formally and we'll have the three candidates. And the election is actually looking like it's going to be pretty close. I know the last time we talked, it didn't look like it'd be close at all, but that's that's changed somewhat dramatically in the last couple of months. For audience, this is the Taiwanese election, correct? Yes, yes, yeah. I, I am not so far into my bottle of beer that I have confused the 2024 November election of ours with the January uh, election of the Taiwanese. So yeah, in January, Taiwan will elect a, its next president to follow on from Tsai Ing-wen. Okay. Um, well, I guess along those same lines then, so where we are very much in the realm of having to consider material and personnel overreach um, as we look at drawdowns, restructuring, force design, all of these retention, recruiting, all the issues that we have to deal with with material and personnel. It seems like China in a almost, I don't know, in, a, in an opposite but same kind of way is reaching, because you, you mentioned gray zone activities, they are really, their footprint is large within the gray zone. Um, and I'm trying to see where all of the activities in the, what is it, the realm below armed conflict, like they are almost omnipresent. But it seems though that those activities, especially, you know, we're, we had mentioned, uh, sent out some stuff from War on the Rocks regarding the Philippines and the Philippine Navy and the, the incursions that, that, that China and the Philippines have had. So as we were considering that a lot of these um, gray zone activities are starting to escalate into actual physical altercations um, that can really sort of ramp things up, is China gray zone overreach? Is that a real thing or am I sort of looking for sil a silver lining on this? No, I mean, so you you raise a, a, there's a lot to unpack in there. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in the gray zone. I, I think we have we have chewed on this particular bone in past podcasts too. I I am not a huge fan of the concept, but it is what it is, and uh, that is how the narrative is, is framed these days. Um, I think the simplest answer would be to say China definitely has all of its fingers and both of its feet, all of its toes in the gray zone. Whether or not that constitutes overreach, I think. There is definitely a case to be made that they are overplaying their hand. And when your enemy or your adversary, your opponent, your competitor is, is making a bad decision, don't get in their way. I would, however, <laughs> distinguish that from overreach sort of in the context where we talk about it in the U.S., where they are spread so thin that they can't possibly manage all of the potential crises. I don't know that I would go I would go that far. OK, I guess. I'll, uh, uh, but then what about if one of them were to escalate into actual armed conflict, um, something that wouldn't necessarily trigger, um, you know, a multinational coalition, but something that could definitely 
you know, as you mentioned, you know, we're all we're all sitting on this tinderbox here and we're we're smoking cigars. So like, <laughs> when does an ash fall and then they realize that they are ill prepared or because they have jumped in completely in the deep end of the gray zone, they can't really respond. Yeah, no, no. So, and I really like the articles that you had sent for, I, I read them anyway, but it's a great chance to go back to, to those pieces. Um, and I think a big piece of the debate around the gray zone, and I'm happy to share my thoughts of where I fall on the spectrum, but a lot of it turns on the degree to which policymakers think there is a risk of accidental conflict, right? That the ash falls down, hits the gunpowder, and everything blows up such that you know, the Chinese were trying to provoke and prod, and the thing just got out of hand and spiraled out of control. You know, that scene from Hunt for Red October, you know, this is going to get hurt. Someone's going to get hurt. Uh, I think that is kind of the standard narrative and concern, and I, I don't want I don't want to downplay the risk. Uh, history always has a way of surprising you when you get a little complacent. But at least from a very admittedly academic perspective, I think most IR scholars, and I'll speak for everyone, but I think most IR scholars tend to be pretty skeptical that there is really a such thing as an accidental war. And I guess I would offer a couple reasons. Uh, one is that the whole point of the gray zone, I mean, if the gray zone is a thing, the whole reason an adversary would challenge you in the gray zone is specifically because they are afraid of escalating to the point in which you are going to have a decisive kinetic response because they don't think they can prevail there. And a big piece of what it means to provoke in the gray zone is to maintain plausible deniability, or I think, my colleague at St. Andrews University has a better term for it, which is implausible deniability. But this ability to basically toss out a lie, oh, we didn't mean to do that, that the other side is willing to accept because we didn't want to go to war over it either. And I like to point to, I, I think it was about 2017, a couple of years ago in Syria, where US forces shelled and killed 100 Russians that were members of the Wagner group. And I mean, right there, that should have been a classic case where, hey, we're basically at war with Russia and Syria. And it didn't even make the news in the U.S. And it wasn't classified, just didn't it, because Moscow and Washington both agreed, hey, we're going to step back from this one. I think the second reason to be a little bit, maybe, I don't want to say not afraid, we should always be concerned about that, that potential risk of a tinder going off uh, or a tinderbox setting off on fire, is that a lot of the scenarios we're really worried about, full-scale conflict scenarios with China, I mean, these aren't things that we or China can get in place the ships, the people, the jets overnight. And so if China, if there was some sort of an accidental collision in the middle of the night, and nobody really knew exactly what happened. And we assume the worst case that this order came directly from Beijing uh, for them to do anything about it means they're going to have to surge forces into that theater. We would have to surge forces into that theater. And so I think we could have some sense whether or not that spark was an accident. All right, we need to talk or that spark was intentional, AKA they have a bunch of stuff already waiting on the border ready to move. So, I mean, clarify, I guess, because you, you, you kind of, you, you said you're not 100% on, on, on board with the concept of a gray zone. Do you mind just clarifying that? What, what, do you, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, so, so again, and, and I take this as a person who has no real skin in the game, aside from having a spouse in the military, but no skin well, in the hold game. Hold up. We all got skin in the game. Like, we're on a Chinese kill list. Like, let's accept that and move forward, that we are very much betting on a horse in this race. Well, and, and, and I, 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 you are correct, and I'm often harking on my students that as much as we all worship at the altar of the all-volunteer force, if this thing cooks off to the degree that some of us worry it could— uh, I mean, all volunteer force is not going to hack it. We are going to be returning to the world where selective service is no longer this kind of thing you simply do and don't think about after your 18th birthday. 
Um, but yeah, so to your question, I, the reason I'm not a fan of the gray zone construct is because actually I think this is a story that's as old as time, which is that adversaries, when they don't think that they can prevail at the higher levels of conflict, they're going to they're gonna fuck around with you, right? They're going to try to probe you and prod you in ways that they can see what they can get away with. Yes, that was a, that was a dream signal. Um, to see what they can get away with and to see if you'll respond. And if you respond decisively, they're going to they're gonna throttle things back pretty quick. Um, so I do think that there is always a risk that China can be using these provocations, these kind of creating new islands where they didn't exist before in the South China Seas to establish new facts on the ground, to probe and recon our capabilities and our allies' defenses. So maybe this can be useful for setting them up for the conditions for a full-scale conflict. But again, I kind of think that we would see the indicators of that, and therefore we would have a little bit of time to react to a full scale. That this is not something that would presage a surprise attack. So actually, I just think this is them seeing what they can get away with. I I tend to think that we actually should lean into the gray zone. I would kind of agree with the, the Grossman take on the the War on the Rocks piece that we should lean into this. That this is actually an opportunity, not something we should be overly terrified of. And that I think again, like Vic said, I think this is a case where China is overplaying his hand. And the more this stuff it does, the more it's pissing off our allies and friends and driving our allies and friends into, into re-embracing the U.S. security relationship and not abandoning us. How do we lean into the gray zone? Is it Do we have just like dudes like whale wars going into to, to, to disputed waters? Like what, what, what does that what does leaning into the gray zone mean? Sure. I mean, so I think a big piece of it is just doing what we are already doing. So all the all the craziness that's occurring around the Sierra Madre right now in the South China Seas, you know, we have American ships, like, I don't even know if they're just over the horizon. They are just like off to the side watching, making it known that we are going to be observing. If two ships go bump in the night again, we're not going to believe Beijing's claim that this was a, a total accident. I think it's maintaining a posture and a presence. I think that it's also reinforcing our conventional defense capabilities in the region to show that, listen, you are right. Beijing, you need to stay in the gray zone because you do not want to let this thing escalate higher. That would be very painful for you. Uh, and I think a big piece of it is actually political and should be oriented and aimed back at the domestic U.S. audience. Which I think a big piece of com competing in the gray zone means getting the American people ready to do this for probably a very long time. I, I don't see this ending anytime soon. I actually tend to think the gray zone is a useful outlet for both China and for us. I mean, there are hawks on both sides of this issue that they want something done. And this allows Beijing and Washington to go back to the kind of most forceful voices on both sides and say, listen, we're doing something about it. Who wants to go to war, though? Um, and so I think in some ways, these gray zone back and forth tit for tats that we should be engaging in uh, are a sign that this is probably about as good as it's going to get until we can resolve the underlying political problem. Yeah, because, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, the way that you would do this would be to actually fight a proxy war. Yeah, well, and that's that's the other thing is that by rebranding something that we have actually known and been doing for a long time, and a lot of which we did during the Cold War, I mean, what we did with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviets as a classic example. The, the Contras, the Sandinistas, Cuba, yeah. I mean, yeah, et cetera, et cetera, right? We, we we have seen this playbook before. We have used it. We have used it against our adversaries. And actually, if you if you kind of follow the evolution of the gray zone construct, before before this kind of around 2014, we refer to it as hybrid warfare. And if you look at what the Russians were writing about hybrid warfare back then, actually the Russians said that they were learning it from the stuff that we used to do in the 80s and, and the, towards the end of the Cold War. 
So last time we spoke, um, we brought up a little bit about Taiwanese politics. And the biggest thing was like, they were responding to how we were treating Ukraine. And that's one of their biggest concerns. Like, are we gonna keep supporting them if sh shit hits the fan? Uh, in recent, that the, the development has changed uh, significantly in recent weeks and months with, especially with uh, Israel. How has how that driven Taiwanese politics? How, what have they seen from that in terms of both, you know, how now, support Ukraine, especially with the mo more recent uh, Speaker of the House issue in the United States, more on the balance. How has that influenced Taiwanese politics? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. I have not seen recent polling data on what's going on in Israel and how that is impacting Taiwanese perception. From the folks I've been talking to, it seems that for the most part, it's not quite making the media, not quite rising to that level of visibility in Taiwan as, say, that Ukraine did my sense is obviously the, the the surprise nature of the October 7th attack. That is something that obviously Taiwanese defense planners are paying close attention to. Maybe there are lessons to be learned there. I think that, you know, in that smaller circle of folks who pay a lot of attention to defense and security issues in Taiwan, obviously there's, you know, going to be some natural concern about the United States and well, is there a risk that we're going to end up getting drawn into a, a larger conflict against Iran? And what would that mean? Would that embolden Xi to roll the proverbial iron dice? Uh, but I don't think Israel and the conflict there had quite the same impact as Ukraine. I do think public opinion polling and the folks I've been talking to, and I, I just, after we spoke the last time I did the last podcast, I went back and spent about a week in Taiwan. Um, my sense is things have kind of stabilized there. And so there was that initial sort of dip in the level of confidence that America really would have Taiwan's back if the shit hit the fan. And this kind of concern that maybe what we try to do is turn Taiwan into an ammo dump like we did with Ukraine, and we try to let them be our proxy in this kind of greater conflict against China. Uh, I think some of those concerns have been assuaged. Our support for Ukraine has really you know, proven enduring. So I think that uh, confidence levels have kind of gone back up. I wouldn't say they're super high, but I think they've kind of gone back to the level that they were at prior to February 2022. Then, I mean, my follow-up question is then, uh, why is the election in, in, in so in so close, and what's at, what's at stake with the, the Taiwanese population? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of the, especially the recent closing and gap in terms of public opinion polling has to do with you know, domestic issues, as it does in any election where you know, foreign policy doesn't always loom large. I think in particular, all three candidates are more or less saying and or likely to say if, if they win the election, uh, that they're going to continue a defense posture and a basic foreign policy orientation that is, it's more or less going to look like the status quo. I think. The Taiwanese people simply, they don't believe anything that Beijing is telling them anymore after Hong Kong, after all of these gray zone intrusions. So there's, there's just no appetite. There's no appetite. And I don't think there should be any concern in the U.S. that say if the KMT wins, if Hoyoe wins, uh, that suddenly we're going to see this kind of reproachment in Taiwan embrace it. And there's just that's, uh, and if there was any sense that Ho and his his administration would do that, I think the Taiwanese people, I mean, he could just get crushed in the election. Um by the same token, one of the concerns with Lai, he's the DPP candidate, he's Tsai's vice president. One of the concerns there is he has a pretty clear track record before becoming vice president of being very pro-independence, uh, but he's really tried to you know, throttle that back, walk that back a lot. And I think I'm doing an injustice to the translation, but I think the, the gist of his line now is, I know Taiwan is independent in my heart, so I don't have to say it or make any moves towards it as president. And so in that way, you know, I still don't think that even if, if he were to win and the polls right now show him as being ahead, not by a huge amount, but being ahead, um, 
that we would see again a fundamental break in terms of Taiwan immediately trying to to reach for independence. And Lai, like Tsai, I think is very committed to improving defense spending, as is Ho. So actually, so I guess, I, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, so as now, as they move into, or, or I guess they're full on into election season, or at least campaign season, um, what are the defense stakeholders saying? Are they, are they also waiting? Um, and then are they waiting in a posture that, the status quo is just going to be maintained, or do they see a shift in, uh, I guess, def either defense spending, or um, you know, moving from a more traditional um, posture to an asymmetric, uh, getting ready for an asymmetric fight um, that we had talked about. Yeah, so I so I, I think it is somewhat difficult right now, and maybe that's just a function of me being an amateur, uh, but to really parse out meaningful differences between their defense postures. A big part of this is, of course, in any election, even an election where voters are going to be a bit more attuned to foreign policy than, say, an American election, it, you know, defense really gets into the weeds. But for the most part, I think all three candidates, Ke, Ho, and Lai, are all committed to increasing defense spending, you know, sticking with that kind of basic trajectory of getting around 2.5% of GDP. I think all of them are at least saying the right things defined as what Washington wants to hear about remaining committed on some level to asymmetry. You're, there's, and this goes back to the gray zone question, there's still a lot of waffling in the Bonnie Glazer op-ed, a lot of waffling about how much asymmetry. And I think at the end of the day, the degree to which any of those three administrations will be able to force the Ministry of National Defense, the defense bureaucracy to embrace <laughs> asymmetry is, is limited. Um, and we can get into all of that but kind of the sense that we need more asymmetry, which is at least better than, than the current level. And I think the sense that all of them would maintain the decision to increase conscription to one year, that's gonna take effect in January for the first time. And so it will be interesting because the election will happen right as that is kind of rolling out for reals now. Uh, and it will be kind of interesting to see public reaction now that young men are being drafted for a full year and how that's gonna play out. I don't think it can affect the election because. Is all going to happen at about the same time. But whether or not different candidates, you know, six months or a year down the road, if this does prove unpopular, you know, maybe they they might throttle back on it. But I don't see that. I don't see that in the cards. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess one of the things you can definitely glean from uh, Gaza, uh, at least, you know, very much from the cheap seats, uh, looking at how Taiwan may be perceiving international other international events is, is that the israelis because of their conscription were able to rally a very sizable force to respond you know very quickly i mean to the point where um you know folks are are literally taking you know um domestic air and um civilian air to just fly in from all their other countries because they were they they're you know responding to the call yeah no no i think and by the way i'm I'm cracking into my second beer, so now is when I speak hard truths. Um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, let's go. <laughs> we're gonna no. have we have the Hunziker inebriation scale. Well, you you remember back in Okinawa when apparently I spontaneously learned how to speak Spanish. So um, <laughs> I do. Hold, hold up, no one begins a conversation with you remember Okinawa because from what, all I've heard from every retired Marine is like they don't remember Okinawa. Like, but if you want to be technically correct, William, that is true, but. There are a few things that still come back through that, but that wonderfully foggy period back when Okinawa was not at the tip of the spear, which is 
is uh, definitely been a changed circumstance today. No, I, I mean, I think one of the really interesting things that we in the United States and hopefully in Taiwan are paying close attention to is the lessons learned from Israel's conscription experience. I do think Taiwan's got a lot to learn about conscription and reserve mobilization because those are kind of technically two different sets of issues based on how Taiwan operates. Uh, the one challenge, though, is going to be that Israel, in dealing with the aftermath of October 7th, while truly a horrific attack, wasn't technically an existential threat in the same way that maybe a Chinese invasion, especially if it comes with massive cyber attacks and long-range missile attacks, such that Israel still has this ability, maybe luxury, to kind of mobilize with a little bit of breathing space. Like, nobody's literally hitting mobilization centers with long-range ra rockets or cyber attacks. It's beyond Hamas's capabilities. Flip side is for Taiwan, mobilization may literally have to occur under fire. So I would agree, my, you know, I think moving from where Taiwan is to where it would be better off being would require emulating something closer to what Israel does than certainly, say, the operational reserve of the U.S. model. Uh, I still, though, don't think if we're being very serious about a worst-case scenario, and, you know, if we want to get to that Bonnie Glazer article where she says maybe we shouldn't focus on that, I, I don't know that I agree. Uh, but if we're looking at inoculating against the worst-case scenario, I would say, uh, you know, the IDF model is good, but it's not probably as good as it could be. I guess so, so then looking then um, from the Taiwan lens, um, we had already sort of mentioned this idea of gray zone overreach and, and you know, maybe it's a more of like a, a, an overcommitment than overreach in the way that we would understand it. But at the same time, that whatever that looks like, it's still looking like something to the Taiwanese military. Um, and they are, I don't know, please comment on this, would they be more attuned to the nuances of a overcommitment or a improper commitment to the gray zone, given the, all the domestic issues that they have, to the point where we may be raising more issues about the activities that are going on in the South China Sea than Taiwan maybe isn't quite so concerned, because they do understand all of these things and the fact kind of like you said is hey if they're gonna if they're gonna continue to mess up i do not want to get in their way yeah I, I mean i really like this question i think it's the right way of thinking uh it, it's why i think the i think the u.s would be better off talking about the gray zone as an opportunity to the threat in, in a couple of regards one of which is i and i think we love i think we learned this from vietnam i think we learned this from iraq i think we've learned this over and over again and it's a lesson we somehow keep putting back on the back shelf uh, our allies understand the information disinformation environment better than we do. We are just whatever. And William's question, you know, what can we help in the gray zone? You know, there are a lot of things we can do, but one thing we can't do is galvanize social resolve. And so I've said it a bunch of times, you know, if gray zone provocations alone are sufficient to undermine Taiwanese resistance to fight and faith in their government, then I, I don't know what the fuck we're even talking about here. Because somehow a country that is so irresolute that some drones flying overhead and some cyber attacks cause them to capitulate to Beijing will suddenly then be willing to fight when the armada mobilizes? Like, that's just, that's that's crazy pants. Um, second, I actually think the Taiwanese are very savvy in terms of understanding disinformation and misinformation. I think they know when they're getting the line right out of Beijing, they've been dealing with this environment for a very long time. And when you go to Taiwan, 
you can literally be reading an American website, you know, Wall Street Journal, you know, freaking out about a bunch of airplanes flew over the median zone. And in Taiwan, they just shut it off. Like, we've been dealing with this forever. Now, yes, there's a risk of in, inducing too much complacency. Yeah, because, but I mean, Zelensky, Zelensky was saying a lot of that same stuff. And then all of a sudden, here came, here came the Russians, right? Although, although Zelensky was saying it as Russia was mobilizing armored divisions on his border. And so, you know, and this is where it's like, okay. It's true. 50 planes fly over the median zone and they do a fish hook and fly home. We probably shouldn't freak out. 50 planes fly across the median line and 100,000 troops are loading ships. Well, that's a different matter. And, and again, right. this is where I think we have to be clear about at a minimum what the gray zone is and isn't. Because otherwise, if it becomes everything, it's kind of too easy to just to misrepresent. Yeah, everything going. that isn't shooting is a gray zone, right? <laughs> it, 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 exactly. And then you stretch it far enough, everything that is shooting is yeah. in a gray zone. So I, I think... I, I think I actually don't think the Taiwanese are nearly as irresolute as people who freak out about the gray zone sometimes portray them as being. I think they know what's going on. My actual concern, getting to the whole asymmetric argument, which I just, I can't let this hobby horse go. Um, my real concern is focusing too much on the gray zone. Not only isn't helping Taiwan, because I don't think Taiwan really needs that much help in galvanizing resolve against the gray zone. What it does do is I think feeds into a talking point to the Ministry of National Defense, which really wants any justification possible to acquire more symmetric capabilities like F-16s and large warships so it can do intercept missions. Um, and this is kind of where I do, and you know, utmost respect for, for Bonnie Glazer and all the important work that she does in her piece. In The War on the Rock, she argues, well, Taiwan needs more jets and it needs more ships, even if it's going to lose them in the first moments of a fight because they're useful in the gray zone. To which I guess I counter, I don't understand. If you want to monitor Chinese intrusions, do it with a drone. Or if you want to intercept a ship, I don't know why an old rickety ship isn't just as good to do it as a brand. I was to say, I mean, just dress up as a fisherman and take out, you know, something that'll, you know, it, it, yeah, that it doesn't, it doesn't require billions, billions of dollars to yeah, make it, that happen. You don't need to meet, you know, fishing militia ship with fishing militia ship and Chinese destroyer with Taiwanese destroyer. And in fact, there is literally no, I mean, it becomes a cost imposition problem or not problem, solution for China. They just have so much more crap they can throw at Taiwan. No matter how many F-16s Taiwan buys, China just has to throw more old stuff across the median line. And we're right. already talked to any Taiwanese Air Force officer. I mean, they are just, they're getting exhausted. Their pilots are tired. Their jets are getting worn down, intercepting not even all of the intrusions. So there's simply no world in which Taiwan could ever keep pace. And if Taiwan sets that as being the goalpost, we have to keep pace with every intrusion or even half the intrusions. China has a really easy answer. Let's just keep doing this until half of Taiwan's air force is broken down. Right. Uh, well, I guess along those lines, then, do we, uh, are we able to pull pages? I mean, as, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking it's strictly from a military, um, tactical, operational, strategic lens here, because I do not want to encourage or give the perception that I've, I feel like Hamas's activities are uh, legitimate or justified or anything other than a t horrific terrorist act. Um, that being said, though, tactically, they were able to subvert and operate under a, a highly skilled and elite level uh, intelligence network. Um, and it seems that they had gotten, because that, because the Israelis had gotten away from human intelligence, and it started relying more on tech intelligence. So I guess in response to that, with what you're saying with Bonnie Glazer's article, is that 
where can Taiwan, what pages of that playbook can Taiwan take and then make and then find success in? Yeah, no, I, I mean, another another great question. I've, I've been pondering this a lot and thinking even more off the cuff than I ever do or probably should. I, I think there are two things I would highlight, one of which is a warning and one of which is, you know, let's let's see what we can do to emulate. Uh, the warning is the risk of strategic surprise. I, I tend to fall on the Peter Culver side of the spectrum and the Easton side of the spectrum when it comes to early warning. I tend to think you can't really do a snap invasion. And so, yeah, maybe you can do big exercises and sneak a bunch of stuff there that's kind of ready to go. But at the end of the day, we probably have the ISR capabilities. Taiwan probably has the ISR capabilities to just detect the amount of shit that Taiwan would need to get together in order to, or sorry, China would need to get together to mobilize to invade. Uh, but I do think, exactly as you pointed out, this over-reliance on technological surveillance may create vulnerabilities to creative opportunities, gaps, uh, or strategic surprise. I, I mean, who on October 6th thought they'd be waking up the next morning reading about Hamas terrorists coming over on hang gliders? And although I don't think this is going to be a million PLA on hang gliders, I also right. think it should just, it should, you know, we should open up our aperture of creative options that Beijing could attempt to try. Because I really do, one thing I would agree with is this obsession with worst case scenarios really seems to boil down to a D-Day style invasion. And as, as I always echo Tom Earhart, that brilliant strategist, he keeps saying, you know, the enemy is going to solve its operational problems the way that it sees fit, not the way that we see fit. And when we see large bodies of water, we think Marine Corps Second World War but the irony is even our Marine Corps is transitioning away from that mode of doing business. So if we're lucky, the Chinese will just try to emulate our tentative landing manual. If we in Taiwan are unlucky, they may try something that we aren't prepared for. So that's the warning. My gut tells me the thing that I really hope Taiwan is paying attention to, the silver lining, I don't want to use that, you know, the thing they can learn would be, you know, that asymmetry can work and that hardening your city, digging tunnels, really making this thing a hornet's nest to deal with. I do think it's true China will not care nearly as much about collateral damage as Israel does, uh, but still you can make things a nasty operational and tactical challenge because at the end of the day, somehow the PLA is still going to have to get boots on the ground. And just given the urbanization, the mega city that is Taiwan and Taipei City, uh, that, would, that would make life real hard on the Chinese invasion force in a way that buys us lots of time. So this is something we bring up every episode, and I, I, it'd probably be good to have a status check. Is there any push to have those capabilities where it's, you know, instead of us sending them, us, sorry, instead of the United States sending them, you know, massive missiles and whatnot, more on the ground individual capabilities? Has that been, has that push advanced at all, or is it still dead in the water? And unfortunately, the Taiwanese government's not listening to our podcast. <laughs> I, I hate to break it to you. Taiwanese, Taiwanese not listening. My mom is listening. She's listening very closely. She's a big fan. Um, she has less than effective pull with, with the Tsai administration. No, I mean, <laughs> I, I feel like among the people in Taiwan who pay close attention to security and defense issues who are not the Ministry of National Defense, there is this basic sense that, that uh, these asymmetric-like postures are the way to go, or at the very least, that Taiwan needs more than what it already has. Lots of cheap things, lots of drones that are lethal and mobile, and, and you know, Force Design 2030 just flipped over for the Taiwan version. Um, the challenge, though, is still, I have seen nothing, and I, I am, hope springs eternal, I'm waiting to be surprised, and then I can, you know, 
uh, egg on my face. But I just don't see the Ministry of National Defense as buying into it yet. I see nothing to suggest the Ministry of National Defense is about to buy into it. I see the Ministry of National Defense dragging its feet. And sometimes the political decision is made to acquire these sorts of capabilities like harpoon missiles. And so it'll do it, but I don't hear or see anything that seems to suggest they've got a plan for actively integrating these capabilities. This idea of a territorial defense force is still just dead on arrival. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, yes, Taiwan is a democracy in which civilians control the military, but the military is much more powerful in its ability to give the highest man to civilian leadership than it is in the United States. And I don't see any reason that I feel terribly optimistic, no matter who wins in 2024, uh, that that relationship is going to change and that even the KMT would be any better at forcing MND to do this sort of stuff. So until we somehow find a way to break down that barrier, uh, you know, I think, I hope that at least American policymakers will continue to be skeptical of the words that are coming out of Taiwan and Taipei and really focus on like, are we seeing this change on the ground? And I think a great Nick's litmus test, litmus test will be what training for these conscripts that are coming online in January, what that actually looks like. Yeah, so actually that leads with a question I had then is, is there a appetite for changing the posture away from just being reactive to whatever it is that the CCP does? Or is there an, is there a, an avenue or a motivation to be almost like um, to use the Hamas and, and Israel conflict as, as the uh, barometer, but is there an opportunity or do the Taiwan, the Taiwan military see positive ways of doing counter intel or creating setting conditions in within mainland China that would then deter or prevent China or distract China then? I mean, to, I guess to use China's own tactics against them um, in this sort of uh, in these operations below, uh, you know, armed conflict. Yeah, so I mean, I would say if we're looking at what I consider worst case scenarios, I would agree, not most likely, but worst case scenario invasion. Oh, yeah, does the Ministry of National Defense have a plan to not be reactive? And that's long range strike. And I think, and I've said in several of these versions of Pocket App, it's deeply problematic for all sorts of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that there's just no amount of conventional military power, aka conventional missiles, that Taiwan could possibly fire against China that would break its resolve or diminish its capability, and actually would probably give it an excuse to, to go ahead and finish off the attack. And I could see China actually trying to go Taiwan into pulling the trigger first. Uh, at the level of gray zone threat, you know, I think, again, the Taiwanese understand this threat environment, this world, and these operations better than we do. They understand the cultural context. I don't know that I've seen anything that suggests the level of sort of proactive versus reactive offense is the best defense in the gray zone that you're suggesting. I would wonder, though, um, spitballing totally here, super dangerous. I mean, I would wonder, though, the degree to which the more here in the U.S. that we hype the gray zone threat and make Taiwan look like it's vulnerable and helpless against the threat, that we're actually eroding creative thinking that the Taiwanese could be doing, saying, listen, actually, you got this one. In fact, we need you to handle this one. We'll be your backstop, uh, but we can't take the lead on this type of operation. And we would love it if you were getting a bit more creative in your cyber capabilities and your disinformation capabilities. And of course, one of the best things Taiwan can do is be this beacon of democracy. 
of successful capitalism. And here I would agree with, with Bonnie Glazer and others that there are a lot of things the U.S. can do, especially on the economic front, to relieve some of the pressure on Taiwan, and we are doing, uh, to relieve some of the pressure on Taiwan to diversify its economy. Because again, nothing really shows the Chinese people the potential of democracy and capitalism than a, than a flourishing Taiwan. Anyway, sorry, unmuted. Uh, so Mike, you brought up an interesting point that you said that you're hoping that China thinks that they're hoping Taiwan is the one that kicks this off. Is that just them being optimistic? Is there some pragmatism behind that where Taiwan would actually do that? Or can you just dig into that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, no, so, so I, and I should be clear. I, I do not think there's, I really don't think that there's a world in which the Taiwanese people certainly would support a preemptive move towards independence, which would be the clear-cut red line that the Chinese would use to say, listen, we are justified. Uh, so there's, I don't think there's a, there's a realistic risk of that. Uh, the concern I would have is in a manufactured crisis. And, and by that, I mean, if Beijing were to decide to roll the iron dice and on some level be like, listen, it's not working in the gray zone, economic coercion isn't working, the carrots aren't working, we have no other choice but to finish this thing militarily. I don't think the first move we see is, of course, a YOLO move. They're going to find some justification or excuse. This is why I don't think blockade is the threat we should be focusing on. I think a blockade happens in a context of a larger crisis. Maybe they use an earthquake or a disaster or something, a contested election, in which to say we need to do a quarantine or we need to help out with humanitarian assistance and they sortie their fleet. Obviously, again, going back to this plausible or implausible deniability, I think Taipei and Washington see right through it. And so my concern from a military political perspective is in the earliest stages where now we are watching the troops mobilize and now we're watching the first ship set sail to establish some sort of a quarantine or blockade to set the conditions for an invasion force, that there I think Taiwan would have the military and even the political leadership would have a strong temptation to shoot first. Say, so, right, let's, 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 <laughs> let's get that early blow in deep so that we can disrupt their invasion planning. The problem is, I think militarily that makes sense, operationally that makes sense, politically, especially in terms of ensuring that there's like solid support in the U.S. for intervening and solid support in the international community for either supporting the U.S. effort or at least not, not condemning it, uh, that you, Taiwan has to be at that point the victim. And it's kind of like the same problem, and I think we've talked about this before, that Lincoln faced at Fort Sumter, where operationally Fort Sumter knew it was being surrounded and the Confederates were going to attack, but Lincoln basically said, I have to forbid you. You cannot fire the first shot. We have to look like we are the victims of aggression here in order to have the upper political hand to galvanize support, which at least early on may not be immediately forthcoming. But I guess then on that, <clears throat> when we're looking at elections uh, and we're looking at where the Marine Corps um, fits into this, uh, we're talking about, and I don't know if this necessarily would be considered proactive um, gray zone activity, but it would at least be a way we, we talked about you know, what is what does conscription look like from a uh, training um, and TNR sort of standpoint? So if, would do you see a election cycle or election result politically that would then allow Muse to start coming into Taiwan? Um, do you see a political climate here in the U.S. that would think that that's a good idea um, to be advertising and to have, you know, 
Marine Battalion Landing Team serving as advisors that rotate to, through every six months, almost like a, uh, you know, like a Balakatan or Cobra Gold sort of thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's a fascinating and I think an important question. I guess I have kind of two-part answer. One would be my, my sense is, so technically speaking, in some of the older DOD China military power reports, we used to, to list off the red lines, the things that we knew were pretty, or we were pretty sure would trigger a Chinese attack. And one of them was U.S. troops, like boots on the ground in Taiwan. Uh, interestingly, I think it was a couple of years ago, DOD kept on listing those red lines, but it dropped the whole boots on the ground. And I'm not entirely sure why, because my, my sense is that China would see a sizable overt presence of U.S. military forces as being pretty damn provocative. I actually, I think I have to applaud both the Trump and Biden administrations. I think we have always kind of probed exactly where that threshold is by figuring out, you know, we clearly have troops on the ground. You know, we maybe have 200 or so trainers right now. We have become increasingly overt. We have definitely been like salami slicing. Uh, I think feels like in the current context, a mew would probably be exceeding that acceptable boundary. Uh, but, you know, the, the Overton window changes. And so maybe in the future, which gets to the second part. I do think the Marine Corps and the Army, and, and I, I think I'm, I'm pretty damn sure they're already doing this, but I do think we need to be working on plans and TTPs to get boots on the ground at that kind of point where we realize, hey, we are moving from a crisis that could result in a war to, right, China's moving to, to fight. And I think that's part of deterrence. I don't think that means we have to have the boots on the ground and exercise that, but to signal that we do have that capability on the books to rapidly insert stand-in forces and part of this, and this gets to kind of the concern about U.S. overreach and overstretch, sorry, overstretch would be a better word, uh, is I do think if we are being serious about really deterring China, that we have to be able to signal that we are not only in it to win it, but that we have the ability and the resolve to do it for a long time. There's, I think, and it's starting to change now. CNAS literally just had a report that came out like yesterday. I think there has been an undue focus on a short war thesis, like the first six weeks of the invasion. We talked about that, you know, the simulations. I just, I've never found those plausible. And so I think we do have to show China that we are ready for protracted conflict. I think protracted conflict means ground conflict. And so for both the Marine Corps and the Army, thinking in serious ways about, first of all, getting forces in in a crisis, when we're no longer worried about escalating, when we're not, they're right. moving war fighting. And then how could we sustain this fight how could we roll back a beachhead that has landed and taken out a big part of Yali or, or, or Taipei and actually fight in an urbanized environment? And, you know, I don't know that we have those plans yet, but I do think that we're working on them, but I would, I would encourage us to keep working on them. All right, man. Oh, so go ahead, dude. So thank you. Um, <laughs> so forward thinking, you know, as we are intellectual uh, individuals, what steps do you recommend going from here? I know we, we bring this up every time and it may be repetitive, but you know, based on the, the current information and the current geopolitical standpoint, how do we go forward? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's a question we can ask enough. I would say, I think there are three concerns that keep me awake at night and, and inadvertent accidental escalation in the gray zone isn't. It doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about it, just of the things that really kind of take up most of my very limited intellectual bandwidth. I, I guess, number one, I hope that we continue to plan. I, I hope that we are planning in the first place. I'm assuming we are, but I hope we continue to do so in more overt and open ways, planning for simultaneity. 
you know, Vic and I are old enough to remember that the, the two war and then the 1.5 war, you know, the, the planning model. I, I don't think that we can downplay the risk of a simultaneous conflict. I don't necessarily buy into this axis of evil part two, where Tehran and Beijing and Moscow are meeting in like some sort of an Austin Powers group and figuring out you know, <laughs> diabolical. But the chances of one of these conflicts cooking off or, or, or North Korea in a way that just creates this all too obvious opportunity for somebody else to do something like, well, I don't think we could defeat the United States toe to toe, but if the United States is getting sucked into this other theater, now may be the best chance we will ever have in the next 10 years to take advantage of it. And so I think if we really want to deter that, we got to be able to show that we can do that. So simultaneity, which I think comes back to this question of the all-volunteer force and conscription, like showing the American people, you know, we're, we're willing to go above and beyond if we have to. I think second, planning for protracted war, for planning for protracted ground war and not just in Ukraine. I don't think a serious defense posture in Asia can just be naval and air alone. Because at some point, we're going to run out of the rockets and the missiles and the ships. There will be a pause. And in that pause, I think there's going to be a lot of ground fighting. And this thing may end up looking a lot more like Ukraine than it does or that we can imagine. Because, you know, we just don't have large arsenals of these things and we can't build them very fast and we'll probably expend them very quickly. And the third thing I know I've harked on before, but I just I don't know that we've done enough to think about the serious risk of nuclear escalation. I just I think we take it for granted that we have more than China does, so they're not going to use it. I just I think there's an imbalance of resolve. Taiwan is going to matter more to Beijing, especially if it attacks. And so, you know, I hope we're running through those games as well. All right. Well, uh, Vic, I know you just walked away to get another drink, um, but uh, do you have any other <laughs> uh, uh, malingering questions? No, I, I, th I find it really fascinating, this idea of, um, you know, what it I guess the symmetry versus ace, uh, the symmetric versus asymmetric. Um, yeah, that's that's a, a, a that's a uh, that's a bone for you guys. Um, I just, I wonder about that and why. You know, what it is about the bureau the bureau uh, the bureaucracies because obviously uh, our bureaucracy is is quite a juggernaut as well um, that. It, where it seems obvious to us, um, but not so much on the Taiwanese military bureaucracy and why, you know, a $1 billion F-35 that won't make it 10 minutes into a conflict seems much more desirable than, you know, $100 million worth of um, loitering munitions. I don't, I don't understand that. Yeah, I it really so I'll, I'm right now I'm I'm reviewing for a, a friend a book manuscript and I hope this thing comes out soon. So I don't want to spoil any of the thunder, but it's talking about the challenges that Petraeus and others face as they tried to implement FM3 TAC24 back in the day, counterinsurgency manual and doctrine and the establishment of the asymmetric warfare group. And what I really love about his manuscript is why I hope this thing comes out soon, is he goes in really painstaking detail about just all the mundane, mind-boggling obstacles the bureaucracy threw up every step of the way, which to an outside observer or a scholar would be like, that's that's stupid. Like We're losing lives in Iraq. Let's solve the problem. But I mean, to just give one example from his amazing book, which will hopefully come out soon, you know, um, at one point they were trying to field some, some little pamphlets that had graphic aids for how to deal with IEDs and snipers. And the problem was TRADOC, Army's Training and Doctrine Command, they tried to roll these things out and they tried to call them graphic training aids. And TRADOC said, 
actually technically a graphic training aid is only something we can produce and it requires a two-year vetting process. So we're not going to allow you to call it that or vet it. So they literally had to find a different way to name this thing so they could roll it out without commanders saying we're not allowed to read it. And, you know, it's just a microcosm of how each of these little teeny tiny anal retentive, uh, you know, rules can really magnify. And how, again, like you said, we deal with the same thing. It's just that each side kind of forgets that the other side has to, has to deal with these things. I also, I would agree, we should probably take a close look in the mirror before we totally chide the Taiwanese military for not embracing drones. Because I mean, even like, again, not to throw stones here, but you know, the US Air Force has been really slow to embrace uncrewed aircraft and remotely piloted vehicles. And a big reason for this is, you know, because the people who are in charge of the Air Force were pilots. And so there's just this kind of intra-community, political, prestige-based set of arguments. And I, I, you know, if it's fair for the U.S. Air Force to resist embracing drone capabilities, then I guess we shouldn't be surprised that Taiwan. I would simply say, though, the fact of the matter is Taiwan is 90 miles away from this existential threat. So uh, unfortunately, while it's a it's an understandable reason. I don't think that necessarily means Washington should accept it as an excuse, because if Taiwan gets it wrong and it doesn't do everything it can to deter right, American lives are on the line. So you bring up an interesting point. So let's just pretend you know, that I'm a dumb American taxpayer. Um, American taxpayer, brilliant. <laughs> And I have no idea how you know the process of us giving supplies to Taiwan works. Let's just pretend. Um, is there a way we just say, "Hey, we understand the changing character of war. You need this, and we're in in this, you know, mega billion dollar aid package we're giving you. It has to go to these capabilities that we want you to have. Is that a possibility, or does Taiwan, the Taiwanese government, have too much of a say in what they want to receive? Yeah, it's a, it's a I. American taxpayers are a brilliant group, um, and I think most of them would still be befuddled by just how hard we sometimes make this. So I think there are a couple of obstacles. Number one is some of the most exquisite capabilities we just don't have a ton of. <laughs> Actually, some, some of the most mundane capabilities we also just don't have a ton of. And so there is, and this gets to the overstretched problem, you know, Ukraine, Israel. At a certain point, you run out of 5.56 five, munitions and 60 millimeter mortars that you can be giving away, let alone kind of the more cutting edge, bleeding edge stuff. And anything that we were to draw down, this is the presidential drawdown authority, to literally just hand over ready-made, um, we may not have enough of it. The second problem is even if we had enough of it or even if we said we'll accept the risk, it better that our frontline partner has it than we have it, we could have time to build it. There's the problem of just because you have the stuff doesn't mean you have the doctrine and the training to use it. And I think this gets to kind of my earlier critique of the Ministry of National Defense is even in cases where we have really, and I think the Biden administration has done a great job of twisting Taiwan's arm and saying, you're going to buy these things. Um, even when they're being purchased, even when they eventually show up in five to 10 years, like harpoons, it's not clear the Ministry of National Defense takes them seriously enough and plans to integrate them into its defense concepts and therefore, you know, recruit, train, and equip the forces that are actually going to use the harpoons and have the tactics and the techniques and the procedures and the doctrine. And so, you know, getting the stuff is literally just the first step, assuming that you have the stuff to give them. Which gets to the third challenge. You know, there are a lot of debates right now in Congress. Should we be giving like about $2 billion a year, not in just sales, but like just give Taiwan $2 billion that it can spend on both U.S. arms, but also arms around the world, whatever works. Uh, and there are a few challenges, one of which is actually the Ministry of National Defense and some political officials are saying, well, that looks pretty conditional. Like you're giving us this money, but you're saying we have to spend it on X and not Y. And we don't want to take things with strings attached. I mean, it 
it diminishes uh, their credibility in the eyes of their voters. It looks makes them look like an American puppet. And as we've talked about, that's a problem in Taiwanese politics. Uh, and so when things come with strings, and if we're giving things for free, they should probably come with strings. It would be silly for us not to put strings on them. But then that makes it kind of politically contentious to accept those. And then, yeah, you start to layer all the stuff on top of itself. Even something as seemingly straightforward as, listen, you need drones, we got drones, take drones, may not yield the deterrent effect that we're, we're after. Oh, man. Well, I, sorry, Vic, do you have any uh, finishing comments? I do not, man. No, this is, uh, this is really great. And um, you're to be talking about stuff that affects uh, Marines and, and the future generations of Marines uh, on Marine Corps birthday. It's pretty sweet. It is. It is awesome. And, and my only hope is that some some potential of the 249th, 250th, 251st, we're all still around, mostly talking about you and me as old men, Vic, uh, to continue up the conversation. Yeah, man, absolutely. Just to, uh, just to harken back, I'm actually going to go do carrier calls in my garage right after this is over. Well, to all our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in. A happy birthday to all the Marines out there. Keep kicking ass. As an American taxpayer, for the love of God, please keep kicking <laughs> ass. We need it. My friends here uh, watching the show uh, agree heavily that we want hardcore Marines. So you guys are doing great. Um, all the men and women out there. Uh, Michael, thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. And to all of our listeners, please uh, keep tabs on the Taiwanese situation. It's still relevant. There's a lot going on, a lot to follow. Uh, there's a lot of sketchy news sources, but we at Scuttlebutt are 100% reliable. You should listen to us and cite us in the articles that you will write for us for the Marine Corps Gazette because we need them. And that is coming from a hardcore Gazette fan, enthusiast, editor, and American taxpayer. All right. So thanks for tuning in. Happy birthday. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, y'all. Happy birthday. Bye. A common axiom is that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Another axiom is that we sweat in peace so that we don't bleed in war. Here at the Marine Corps Association, we fully understand both. That is why we offer through our professional development page on our website, a comprehensive catalog of battle studies, tactical and ethical decision games, and war games to ensure that not only do we learn from the past, but we embrace the thoughts and decisions that influence the outcomes of some of the greatest actions of the Marine Corps. We have tools and techniques that will enhance both unit training as well as enable comprehensive self-study. Check out all that the Marine Corps Association has to offer on our website. Go to mca-marines.org forward slash professional development. That's mca-marines.org forward slash professional dash development and get your reps and sets in. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC retired, Anthony Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.